Morning. Morning. How you guys doing? Excellent. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Resurrection Church. Uh, I guess we'll get this started. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Got got a few more of those coming, but that's all right. We'll get we'll get going. Uh, We are going to start a new book today and a new series. And so uh, we enjoy taking a book of the Bible and and making our way slowly through it. We have been going through the book of Ephesians for about 18 months, and we'll finish up the last couple verses in Ephesians in January, and we'll have finished out that book. It'll have only taken us 20 months to get through that, uh, relatively fast, I realize. John's going to probably take longer. We're going to start the book of John today. Uh, because the first half of that book has a lot of Christmas implications, and so it's timed really well to talk about the season of Christmas. But we will be in and out of the book of John as we slowly go through that for quite a long time. Now, the book of John's really interesting because it's one of the four Gospels. If you're not familiar with the Gospels, they are eyewitness accounts of people that spent time with Jesus during his mission here on earth. He was in active ministry uh, for about three years or so before the cross and the resurrection. And, and in the four Gospels, what we get is four different eyewitness accounts of what occurred. Now, what's great about the Gospels is there's parts where they're exactly alike. They're telling a story and they're, they're word for word almost. And then there's other times where they're talking about something from a perspective that is their, unique to them, even though they were together. Um, and they're very different. And, and they match the personalities of the authors. And the way I've best heard this described is if there was an accident at an intersection and they, the police officers were taking eyewitness accounts and they were walking around talking and interviewing the witnesses on four different corners of that intersection, there would be times where that story would sound very similar. And then there would be times where the story sounded very different because just having a different perspective and having a different background often leads you to look at different things. So in order to understand the gospel of John, it's important to understand a little bit about the apostle who is John who writes not only this book, but a couple other books in the New Testament. John and his brother were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Not Thor, not a Marvel movie, okay? And they were nicknamed that because they were really loud and they were really brash and they were really, uh, in some sense, really just very arrogant, very selfish. They get caught up in some of the the most cringy parts of Jesus' story like when they're arguing over who's going to be the best in heaven. Can you just see that occurring? Anyone have kids? I won't even finish that story. Okay. And so uh, again and again, you see them for selfish gain, ask things of Jesus. There's times where uh, they go into a village and the gospel's not accepted and they're, and they're kind of... Uh, uh, spurned and they get really angry and they ask Jesus to call down a storm and basically destroy the city because they're angry. I mean, like this is who is writing this book, just so you understand. Like it is a really messy, really arrogant, really loud fisherman writing this book. And you might expect that over time, that type of attitude, that type of personality, given the authority and the notoriety that he would have as one of Jesus' apostles, would lead him, because we see this, right, in the world, we see someone with a lot of authority and a lot of recognition, we see it boast them up and, 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 and create all sorts of terrible things out of arrogance and pride in, in this status, and yet the opposite happens to John. Instead, John was transformed into someone who was strong but gentle, straightforward but loving, courageous but humble. And there's no dramatic event that happens in this one point that changes John. It's just 
slowly coming from being with Jesus, being accepted, being loved, and being affirmed by the Lord, and then filled with the Holy Spirit. So overwhelmed is John by Jesus that he doesn't mention himself by name in this book. He simply calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a humble change for someone who at first all only wanted power and recognition. That's the author of this book. Now, we're going to cover five verses today, and it's very interesting because each of the apostles, as they write their gospel eyewitness accounts of Jesus, start in a very different area. Each book, each eyewitness account starts not at the same point because the authors are writing their own story. And here's where we're going to start with the apostle John in chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning, all the gospels start at a different point. In Matthew, he actually starts with Abraham and begins to look at some of the lineage. Uh, Mark skips all the preliminaries and goes right to the story of John the Baptist. Luke ties Jesus' uh, life to broader historical events in time. But John goes back earlier than all of them. John goes back to the beginning, not creation, not the Garden of Eden. Before that, John goes back to before the garden, before creation, before time existed, to eternity, when God created the concept of time, the eternal God, he says Jesus was there when everything started. In the beginning was the word. The word is an interesting term. In Greek, this term is logos, and the term was actually already a cultural term that was used and had been for uh, probably about a century in Greek. And it had shown up in a lot of different uh, philosophers' theology around 500 BC. So, so 500 years prior to John, actually about almost 600 years prior to him writing this book, there's a Greek nobleman in Ephesus, which is where this is being written, and he taught that the universe operated according to a rational structure, a very unified ordering principle. And if we were careful enough to observe it, we would be able to discern its patterns. And if we could see the sort of patterns of the natural world, we could solve many of the riddles that we see. And according to this theory, all the laws of physics and math and reason and morality can all be traced back to this one ordering principle. And he called it logos, the word. So this is a secular heathen concept. You're going to catch the irony of this in just a second. Other philosophers, such as the Stoics, adopted this idea, and they added it to their own doctrine, even going so far as to describe the word as a divine sort of animating, life-giving, life-moving, like you would call it the force, right? May the force be with you, except they called it logos. This idea that there was some principle permeating the universe that was clearly at work, and you couldn't exactly see what it was, and so... Uh, Philo in 20 BC, who was a Jewish philosopher who had been, who had been influenced by uh, many of these Greek philosophers and by Plato, began to use this word logos to, be, uh, to talk about God's creative principle, that maybe God's mind uh, outside of the tangible realm worked in some sort of a way that we didn't understand. He called it logos. And so Ephesus is not only the birthplace of this idea, and we see it all throughout Greek literature and philosophy, 
But it was always meant to be uh, theoretical in nature. It was never tangible. And so there, there were a lot of implications when John opens up his book and he uses a secular word for people that don't believe in God, who are non-Jewish, who don't believe in Jesus, and he says, the word in the beginning was the logos. If you're reading that and you're a Christian, you're going, man, this guy is off his rocker. Jesus, uh, John is using this because he is going to begin to describe for us who Jesus is and begin to correct some distortions of who Jesus was that were already occurring all the way back in the first century. That all things came from God in the beginning. We think about the word of God, when we see word, we think about the word of God being scripture, but it's more than that. John will describe the logos or the word of God as an actual person, not just a thing, not a force, not something that's theoretical, but a person. We'll see in just a moment, he actually begins to describe the word as him. The word is Jesus. But, but he begins to describe that the word, in the beginning, the word describes or understands about how God works and how God moves. You think about the creation story. If you go back to the Garden of Eden and you begin to look at how did God create everything? Was he sitting there with his hands molding everything? He wasn't. God spoke. God did not need to use his hands. God didn't need to actually move himself. Literally the will of God the very express will of God, he merely spoke and things came into existence. Genesis 1, 1 through 9 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning in the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning on the second day. Verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Merely God speaks and things snap into existence from nothing. There is something. As the word, the son of God fully explains and communicates God. The word is God expressed. If you stop and think about this for just a minute, uh, the power of God's word to simply speak creation into existence. So when we think about the power and the nature of God being expressed, we think about Jesus and we think about scripture. One of the reasons you're going to hear us continually talk about how powerful the word of God is, why you would open up the word of God every time you open up scripture, you should expect God to move in powerful ways is because God's speaking has that power. In fact, historically, when God speaks, things happen. It is the nature and the power of God being expressed and the Bible is at your fingertips. We have never in the human history had access to the Bible in the way that we have it today. And we have never ignored the Bible as much as we do today. In the beginning was the 
word is not actually the most accurate way to translate that, this into English, and that's because uh, in Greek, we're actually using an imperfect past tense, and we don't have a word exactly for that in English, and so if we literally translated this into English, it would sound funny, and so we kind of have dressed it up. In Greek, it would say this, in the beginning, the word was existing, because Jesus is eternal, with no beginning, and no end. And so in the beginning, when there was a beginning, when time actually was created and there was a thing such as the beginning and the end, Jesus was already there existing. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John starts off his gospel getting into trouble. How can the word Jesus be with God before creation? He would have to be eternal, not a man, not a prophet, not a good teacher, not a cool guy, not a WWJD, what would Jesus do, cool on a bracelet, eternal, eternal. The the word eternal in Hebrew, when it's used in the the Psalms, actually uh, connotes this idea of from vanishing point in the past, from as far back as dimly as I could see and remember in the past, to as the vanishing point in the future to as far as my imagination could possibly go in the future, eternity. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, would say it this way, the mind looks backwards into time until the dim past vanishes. Then it turns and it looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion and God is at both points unaffected by either. Time marks the beginning of created existence, and because God never began to exist, it can have no application to him. Began is a time word and can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. But not only was the the word Jesus with God there at creation, but he is God. How can he be with God and be God? Welcome to the Trinity. Now, words matter. Uh, One of the most common distortions about Jesus that happened in the first century, and this happened for the first four centuries when they had to have multiple councils to correct this heresy, and we continue to see today, is that Jesus was not actually God, but rather was created by God. And to explain that, in this verse particularly, Jehovah Witnesses actually changed the scripture to say the word was with God, and the word is a God. And simply adding that one little word to the verse allows them to create an entire doctrine of the idea that Jesus was actually a created thing, not God himself, but rather a creation of God. And this is one of the simplest places that you and I as believers would turn to the Bible to talk about the Trinity, the idea that God can be one God and yet many. That, that concept is backed up again and again in Scripture. In Hebrew, we have this word, echad. And if you don't spit when you say it, you're not really saying it right. Okay, you need a little saliva to get it going. Echad, it means one yet many. It's the word that is described, that, that is used to describe marriage. When many become one flesh, it's echad. And when it talks about God being one yet many, it's echad. We just don't have a word for it in English. God will establish again and again that he is one God, yet many. 
He was in the beginning with God. How do we know that the word, Jesus, is divine, eternal, an eternal person, not a thing, not a force, not the force be with you? Because in verse two, John describes the word as he, personally. The word is not it, it's not they, it's not a thing, it's Jesus, and it's personal. This is the personal nature of God. God is not an alien. We are made in his likeness. He's not foreign to us. Establishing that Jesus is eternal and has always existed and part of God is not only part of understanding the nature of God, it's part of defending the faith. This concept, this distortion of Arianism that popped up in these earlier centuries that taught that Jesus was a creation, we, we simply, if reading through the Bible, should be able, if we know our Bible well enough, to look at those distortions and go, something's not right about that. He's not a creation of God. How do we know that? Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Imagine for a moment that Jesus wasn't eternal. Imagine for just a moment that uh, Jesus had to somehow earn his divinity by living a really good life. Both uh, Jehovah Witness and Mormons teach that Jesus was a creation of God for different reasons, but they both do. Why would that be a problem? Well, one of the things that that means, the implication if Jesus was actually created by God was that God himself did not love us enough to come down to save us. He had to create something to fix the problem. But that's not the message of God. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God loved us so much they didn't have to, but he decided to voluntarily submit to death on a cross to save us. It's a problem because it distorts the character of God, who he is and how he loves us. Number two, if eternity is something that must be earned by living a certain way, I gotta tell you, I'm in trouble. Do you understand? If Jesus' life is the standard for eternity, like if you could live like Jesus, you're in heaven, I'm in real trouble. Like, that's not good news. That's not me like, hey, I've got good news for you, and you tell me that, I'm like, I don't know why you thought that was good news. I'm in trouble, and if you're being honest, you are too. Nobody looks at Jesus and is like, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> what hope is there for us? If the path to heaven requires us to live the perfection of Jesus, if Jesus, listen to me, if Jesus is the standard to attain instead of the path and the power, then we're all in trouble. If he's the standard, it's like, listen, you gotta make it, here's the target, you better hit it, and if you don't, there's no afterlife. When you say, you know, I'm kind of a good person, you gotta understand that if you think kind of a good person matters, then it, you would have to actually attain the standard of Jesus. If he's the standard, to get in, it's a problem. If Jesus is the standard to attain, instead of the way, the truth, and the life, we're all in trouble. It's hopeless, and there is no good news. And I, in fact, the more I would look at it, the more hopeless I would feel, and the further away I'd be. The, the more I would actually realize who I am and how incredibly selfish and, and sinful I am, I would realize the more I studied Jesus that I'm further away than I thought I was last year. And by the end of my life, I would be in nothing but hopelessness if he's just the standard. And then verse three says this, all things were made through him. All things were made through Jesus. 
And without Jesus, without him, not anything, not was anything made that was made. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, why is Arianism, why is the idea that Jesus was a created thing, why does this, why do the text in John uh, chapter one have to be changed in order to support that type of false doctrine in various false religions? Because everything in the universe falls into one of two categories. Someone told me the other day, every person on the earth falls into one of two categories, those who know how to weld. <laughs> and I was like, that's an interesting classification, brother. <laughs> Some might call that self-righteous. Okay, anyways. <clears throat> I wouldn't, because I'm gentle. <laughs> everything in the universe, not just the earth, the solar system, the universe, the galaxy, everything falls into one of two classifications, things that were created and things that weren't. Would we agree? If it was created, it's not eternal. It had a beginning. If it wasn't created, it has no beginning, therefore it's eternal, therefore it's divine. Therefore time makes no sense to it. So if Jesus was created, he had a beginning. If Jesus was created, he's not divine. If Jesus was created, he's not God. But here's the, here's the tough part. That's why you have to change this verse if you want to believe that. All things that were made, all things that fall into the classification of created things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Jesus didn't create himself, y'all. Jesus is in the was not made category because Jesus is eternal. And everything else, time, time, the concept of time, the concept of beginning and end, I know this is gonna give you a headache, is a created thing. Weather, space, mass, molecules, people, everything is created, not Jesus. Not according to this verse. Verses one through three establish three really critical things that you need to understand about Jesus. They're very important because they have been distorted since the beginning of Jesus' walk on this earth, his death and resurrection. We have seen these distortions and they continue to pop back up in false religions and they continue to pop back up, if I'm being really honest, as a way for Satan to deflect you from the idea that everything good in your life was granted by God and you through your self-effort can somehow earn your way. And so in your Bible, you open it up, at least three of you have one, I'm sure. You're going to write in your Bible, in the margin, next to John 1, 1 through 3, these three words, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. Co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. Co-equal with God co-eternal with God and co-existent with God. They are established in other verses in Scripture, but they are particularly established here in John 1. And John knows what he's doing. He's trying to make sure that you have an understanding that Jesus is not a created thing. It's not a standard for you to try to live by, and if you could just get there, if you could live by 75% of what Jesus lived by, then you'd make it okay. Maybe you could get 75% of the rewards in heaven. That's not how it works. The Bible talks about Jesus being at the center of both creation, when creation snapped into existence because God spoke, and Jesus quite literally holding all things together by his power right now. 
you to think about that. He didn't, j- creation is not just something that Jesus did a long time ago that we remember like when we sit with granddad and we talk about the old days. It's happening right now. The very orbit of this earth, the Bible would say, is being held in Jesus' hands. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1, 16 would say this way, and uh, for by him, we're talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created, that's backing up what we read right here. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, verse 17, and he is before all things because he's eternal, and in him all things hold together. You ever feel like life is spinning out of control? It is. There's one thing holding it together, and it's not a thing, it's a him. And his name is Jesus. Why is this a big point? Because Jesus, listen to me, you forget this. I forget this. Every day we forget this. Jesus didn't create, he didn't just create everything around you that you see. He did. But it wasn't just that. He also created you. And when you create something out of nothing, it's yours. Yes? If you create something out of nothing, it's, you own it. You, you take a blank canvas and you paint something, it's yours, you painted it. It's your creation, it's your possession to do with whatever you want. Your life is Jesus' creation to do with whatever he pleases. Now, that is going to shake some of our self-confidence in our own decision-making, in our own independence. Gosh darn it, I'm an American. Personal liberties, First Amendment, let's go. Except you are his creation that he created and knew was going to create before the foundations of the earth, before he sunk the mountains, before he spilled the oceans onto this world, before he knit you together in your mother's womb, before America was the glimmer in the eye of a little rebel coming from England. (laughs) Jesus knew he would create you, knew he would redeem you, knew you would rebel and run from him and become his enemy and died for you anyway. So you're his possession. You see, there is nothing in reality, whether on this planet or in this solar system or anywhere else in all of human history, that he did not create. And no matter what part of your life, no matter how much you think you've earned, no matter how hard you think you've worked, there's no part of your life that Jesus can't rightly point at and say, mine. Mine. And we like to get our little, we've got like the, there's little pockets of my life that, that I'm like, listen, Jesus, you can have this 90%, but this part I've earned. You, you know what I'm talking about. You chuckle all you want. You got one too. <laughs> Jesus, you can have this part. It's Sunday morning at 9 a.m. But uh, Friday night at 9, keep that over here. This bucket. 
But there's no part of your life, not your identity, not your value, not your preferences, not your job, not your hobbies, not your relationships, not your hopes and dreams and wishes that Jesus doesn't get to point at and rightly say that's mine because he created it and it's his to do with what he wants. And that's the mind-blowing perspective of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he would create it all so he already owned you and yet he would decide that it would be worth it to come back to earth to buy us back with his own blood. I want you to think about this. You like, you know, you're a, you're, we're going to do a creative exercise. Close your eyes. I want you to imagine yourself as a very manly man. Some of you, it's going to be very easy. (laughs) Some of you, not so much. I'm sorry. Gonna be a very manly man. You're going to look like, uh, if you're trying to picture that in your head, like Nigel last week, did you see him up here lighting the advent candle? Like literally, arm's going to bust out of his sleeves. Manly man. Your eyes are still closed, right? Because I see a lot of open eyes. And you like making motorcycles. So in your garage, forearms covered in grease, tools in your teeth, because that's what manly men do. They just carry wrenches around in their mouth. (laughs) You have sweat and skinned knuckles putting together the masterpiece of a motorcycle. The perfect parts, the perfect design, meticulous creation. And when you were done and it was perfection, someone came to your garage and stole it away, drove it down the street, put it in their yard, and put it up for sale on Facebook Marketplace. (laughs) So you, like any manly man, walked over there. That's how manly men walk. (laughs) All the way down the street. And you told them, you would gladly work for years and empty your bank account and give them your last dime to buy it back. Logical, right? When Jesus voluntarily submitted to empty himself of his divinity to come to earth, to be ridiculed, to be falsely accused, to be beaten, to be put on a cross for our sins so that he could buy us back with his blood, he was buying back what he already owned. And if you think, Daniel, I feel like there's a lot of holes in that motorcycle analogy. <laughs> that motorcycle analogy is a much more gentle version than the analogy that God uses in scripture. You can read the story of Hosea and his wife. You see, In the real story, the motorcycle runs away on its own and solves itself into bondage. That's you and me. Because Jesus planned me, he created me, he sustained me, and then, after all of that, I ran into slavery on my own. He came, found me, and bought me back with his blood. Verse four, in him, in Jesus, was life. Was life. The Greek word here is zoe. It means eternal life. It means divinity. John is saying that only, only, only in Jesus Christ is life. Only in Jesus Christ is eternal life. Jesus uses this exact same Greek word in John 14, 6. At the Last Supper, 
So in essence, John is telling you now in the prologue of this testimony, before he begins to chronicle out Jesus' life of what this looks like, something that he's told at the Last Supper before Jesus will go to the cross. And when Jesus looks at his disciples, who most of the time can't seem to figure it out or get out of their own way, he looks at them and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that is what's meant by in him is life. In him was life. And the next part of this says, and the life was the light of men. That's the first time he's used this word light to describe Jesus. We're going to talk about it because it's used a lot. It's used all the way back when when Moses is describing things in in Genesis and Moses is writing about the light and he's talking about God. Because verse five says this, the life is light of men. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me just be honest For a lot of us, there's a lot of our life, we feel like the darkness has potentially overcome it. They'd certainly overcome us. The Bible's clear that darkness has not overcome the light. The light itself means a couple different things scripturally. The light means understanding and moral insight. We would call that spiritual vision. Jesus reveals both in our life. When Jesus, the light, is, is pushing back the darkness, he reveals things in us. He reveals our sin, and he reveals his righteousness. When you get a glimpse of how sinful you are, that is because Jesus is illuminating it for you. The Bible would say that without Jesus, without the light, without Jesus revealing that to you in your life, you would think you're okay. If you walked in here today and you're like, I'm all right, I'm not even sure, I'm just here because mama's here and I don't want her to be mad around Christmas time, I'm telling you, if you think you're okay, it's because you don't yet actually know Jesus because when the light comes to the darkness, all of a sudden you go, oh no, oh no. And it is the very light that shows us our sin and our depravity and our shortcomings that also show us his righteousness and his sufficiency so that when we see him and we see ourselves and we see the gap, we have an understanding of our need for him. That's the light. This revelation is akin to turning on the lights in a dark room. You may think that room looks really clean and then you turn the lights on. If your mama ever told you to go do the floors, you always want her to come check on it with the lights off. It's clean, Ma. No, it's not. Really good at self-deception when the light's not there. In our case, it is the turning on of the lights in a dark heart and a dark mind. And that light shows us our sin and his glory. And, and, And... Notice how John has moved from the past tense. He's been describing the beginning. He's been describing before creation, before time. Everything's been past tense, past tense. And then all of a sudden, it's present tense. And the life was the light of men. The light shines, present tense, in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Right now, in 2022, All of history from before creation and all of human history up until this moment, up until Jesus would come, right now God was at work, but now he's still at work. We don't come to church to talk about the past only. 
we look at the past to realize what God is doing now in our presence, in our midst. God is not silent or absent in your struggles. One of our deceptions is that as we're struggling, as things are really difficult in our life, we have this idea that maybe Jesus has left the building. I was talking to somebody this week and I was describing my own life, how how, um, I really begin to understand my uh, inability to just follow Christ and have faith in tough moments when I was actually on a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and uh, we were doing fishing and we were fishing and a storm came in. It rolls in really fast in Florida. The storm rolls in really quick and we're on this boat and all of a sudden it's like six foot troughs and six foot crests which means that at the bottom of the wave, it's 12 feet of just a wall of water and you can't see the horizon. And so every time you're at the bottom of the wave, there's not even a sky. It's just a wall of water. And at the bottom, you're like, oh no, we're gonna die. And then you come up over the top of the, the, the wave and half the boat leaves the water and you're practically flying. If you're not really smart, you climb out on the front of the boat and you hold onto the little rope. And you ride that sucker. <laughs> and it is a blast. Not that I would know personally, honey. Um, <clears throat> and the, the boat is half out of the water. And you, you barely even know there's water because all you see is sky. And it's like, God's here. God's not. God's here. God's gone. God. And you think, oh, that's really funny. But I do that in my life. Difficulty arises. And I'm like, I'm not sure God's here. And God's like, I'm still on the boat. Do you ever look at the story of of the disciples on the boat? Jesus has done all those miracles. He's just worked in power. I mean, he's just done things there's just no possible explanation for other than the power and presence and sufficiency of Christ. And he's clearly the son of God. And the miraculous is happening. And they just watch that. And they get on the boat and there's a storm. And they're like, I don't don't know where God's at. I mean, we're all going to die. And you're like, bro, six hours ago. You saw miracles. Are you that dumb? And I'm like, yes, I am that dumb. I am. I am, because I'll watch God do miracles, and the next day, I live like he's not real. And so I want to laugh at the disciples until I look at my own life. And then it's not nearly as funny. Jesus is not absent in your struggle. He didn't abandon you when life got hard. But there's a reason that the light shines in the darkness because it is dark. There's darkness of sin, of demons, of Satan. The very enemies of God attempted to suppress him. We see Satan's hand even in the crucifixion story. The attempt to suppress the truth. The light of God killed on a cross, hidden in a tomb, but death could not hold him. The darkness could not suppress Jesus. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about what it means to have faith. That's an interesting word. I had actually had somebody ask me one time who's not a believer. He said, I just don't understand the faith thing, whatever that is. Like, how do you get it? And he was wondering, like, you know, could what I order it on Amazon? Is it prime? Will I get it in two days? Uh, the point is he, he was really struggling over that idea as a non-Christian, and I wasn't struggling over it at all at the time. I was thinking, like, what are you talking about? Like, why, why would that be difficult? But later I understand what he meant. Because I, <clears throat> I feel like I often live my 
life in a very similar manner to people who don't know anything about Jesus or gospel or the gospel or eternal life. And that, that actually kind of scares me that, that you can look at my life and go, yeah, that seems like a normal life. But, but if I know the truth of the gospel, should it look like a normal life? Like I wonder about that. Like what, what is, what is faith? Because it talks about faith being the ability to put confidence in something that is unseen. But, but I have this tendency to only want to put confidence in God when I see him. And, and, and then want to really have like some, some real angst and some anxiety when I don't see him. But, but that is actually the definition of, of faith. I think faith is placing this personal conviction, this, this personal assurance that I'm actually willing to act on, to, to live on, particularly when I can't see it. So, so walking across a bridge that looks safe and, and it looks like it's, it's been built really well and I think I can see other people walking across it, like I'm not sure that takes any, safe, any faith at all. I've got other people that are demonstrating that it works fine. It looks pretty good. It doesn't look rickety. Where's the faith? But stepping out from a cliff when you can't see the bridge? That, that would take some faith. You... The Bible talks a lot about faith because in Hebrews 11, it says that you can't please God without faith because to please him, you'd have to draw near to him and to, to draw near to him, you'd have to believe that he exists and you'd have, to, you'd have to want to pursue him. But to do that, you'd have to want to pursue something that sometimes you can't see. I, I think that to please God, I need to live a life that, that could only be explained by my, my decisions and my urgency and my passions and my transformation, like the, the way that, that I'm changing could only be explained by the power of Christ, that, that the priorities in my life could only be explained if God was real, that the things that are happening in my life, that the way the relationships work, that the, the path of my life, that other people would look at and go, that is inexplicable apart from the power of Christ. And if you can look at my life and you could explain it away without the power of Christ, then, then I'm actually, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, maybe I'm borderline ashamed that I'm not actually living a life that's actually pleasing to God. If you can't tell the difference between my life and someone else's life that doesn't even know Christ. That means that I've got to find these opportunities in my life where, where a, the decision of faith, the decision to put faith in Christ in that moment, in that decision is going to look foolish to the world. Like I have to find areas in my life and opportunities where God's at work and I want to go join in where only the power of God would explain what's happening right now. But I, I, don't, I, I don't know how much I live like that. Like I know that in the storms I scream for Jesus. Like, I will guarantee you that when things are really bad, I will call out the guy. When I'm in the hospital, when I lost my child, when, when, when the company is going under, like, I'm screaming for Jesus, just like the disciples did when the storm's around, but I'm wondering if I'm willing to scream at other times or if I'm just trying to get comfortable. Am I just living a comfortable American modern life the rest of the time? Like, I, I believe that God works miracles. I don't know if you believe that. I believe that God works miracles. But do I expect them? Do I expect them? Would it shock me if it happened because I wasn't expecting it? I believe that the darkness can't overcome Jesus, but am I hungry for the spiritual battles that I believe he will win? I believe that nothing in my life is out of bounds for Jesus to point at and claim ownership of, but do I do an inventory of my life very often to consider all the things I like to hold back from him? Rarely. 
But I, I think I've come to this, this conviction again and again that living a comfortable life and dying that comfortable death is not enough for me. Like, it's just not. Like, I, I, if Jesus is the light that, that is illuminating this dark, dark world, I feel like the, the, the trap for many of us that know Jesus and they got a comfortable life is that we want to live right at the edge of the light, where it's kind of dark, but if I look over, I can see there's light. I'm like, yep, I think Jesus is still around. Cool. I'm comfortable right here. But if I walked all the way into the light where the power is happening and the miracles are happening, the light would be so bright that all the rest of my life that I don't really want to give over to Christ would then be revealed to myself and to other people. And I don't want to deal with that level of power. So let me stay in the shadows. Let me just have one foot in. And like Sundays, we'll get into the light. And then the rest of the week, we can come back. And it's dim here, but I can kind of see. And I think that's enough. It's not enough for me. I'm just not satisfied. I don't, I don't think you were meant to be satisfied by that either. I don't think that level of comfort was, was what God intended when he talked about picking up your cross, dying to yourself daily, and pursuing him. I don't think it was build a nice three-bedroom in the suburbs. I'm not talking about home ownership. I'm talking about, are, are we pursuing the law? We, we, when we see Jesus at work, are we running for him? Are we going, that's nice, hope it works out. Because in the light is not only, at times, a challenge to the way we live, but, but in the light is actually the only salve, the only ointment, the only comfort, the only real contentment in this life. All you're going to get at the edges with the shadow is you're going to get all that false stuff from our culture that's like, good vibes, bro. Not good vibes. Jesus. And wherever he leads, and whatever he asks for, and whatever he points at, and everything else Man, I don't want lukewarm. You know what the edges of the light is? It's lukewarm. You know what Jesus says about lukewarm? Man, it ain't good. He said, you'd be better off cold. Just go all the way into the dark. I want to I stand in that light, and I want to go wherever it goes. But that means in my life, things have to change. Like I have to wake up every day expecting a miracle today and I need to walk out my door looking for it and, and, and trying to figure out where God's at work in the midst of sometimes what is a mundane day of just going to work and taking care of kids and doing yard work and doing chores and whatever else. But I'm looking for the miracle and I want to go to bed discontented if I don't find it. Hungry that I didn't. Like I don't, I don't understand how to get hungrier for God, like I, if I lay my head down tonight and I haven't seen God at work in power doing things that can only be explained by the power of Christ, I should be dissatisfied and expectant tomorrow because he is at work and he is changing lives and he is pushing back the darkness. And the real question of faith is, do I want to be a part of it or do I just want to live on the periphery and take a glimpse at it every once in a while and then pretend later that I was really a part of it? Do you want a normal, modern life at the edges of the light where it's a bit gloomy, but hope is close enough that you can trick yourself into this complacency? Or do you want to stand under the light of Christ in such awe and expectancy that he just makes you hungrier and hungrier and hungrier to see him at work? Because I think that Jesus wants to make us hungrier. And I think that the, the hunger to pursue the Lord only comes if he does it in us. Because I don't think on my own, I have enough willpower to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and do it. I gotta ask him to do it. I gotta ask him to make me hungry. 
I gotta ask him to change my heart. I gotta ask him to disturb me. And that may be the scariest prayer you're ever gonna pray. That Jesus is Lord, he's eternal, he's God. He created all things, he sustains all things. He's the life and he's the light. Now, the question is, how do I live my life in response? Is it to get to the edges of it or is it to get to the middle of it? Did Jesus call me to the life that I'm living right now? Or did he call me to a life of vibrant, world-shaking, death-defying, scary acts of crazy faith that are standing there right in front of me, and I'm ignoring them because I'm too busy with my comfortable life? Merry Christmas. I want you to pray this with me. I'm gonna let you read it before you pray it because I don't want you to pray it and actually not mean it. And if you pray it, I'm afraid that it's gonna come true because I believe that that's the way God works. He wants you to ask him and then he wants to do it and then he wants to remind you that he does it so that you remember. Here's the prayer. Jesus, help me to be hungrier for your presence. Jesus, help me to want you more than I do right now. Jesus, help me to see where you're at work. Help me to step into your work and not around it. Shake my life up until I cling to you. I'm gonna pray it. I'm gonna pray over you. If you are... Getting back, if you signed up for baptism today, you can make your way over here to the last door. Um, we're gonna get prepped. We have some baptisms. It's gonna be pretty awesome. Uh, if you have never been baptized, if you put your faith in Jesus as king and then didn't take a next step where you publicly declared that moment in your life as a decision where you said, I'm putting everything in the Jesus bucket and if it doesn't work out, I'm gonna look like an idiot, but this is the way that it looks and you didn't move forward in public declaration of that, we would call that baptism. You could do that today. We have spare clothes for you. We have towels. We probably don't have hair products, but it won't matter because you're going to be in the light and Jesus loves you and you can have wet hair. So if you've never done that, you're going you're gonna to walk over here and talk to somebody. We're going to have a prayer team up here to pray for you. You can come up here and pray with us. You can ask us questions. What does it look like to run after Jesus? What does it look like? I had someone call me from, uh, he called me from Indiana. Fort Wayne, Indiana. A guy called me from Fort Wayne, Indiana. He had found me on the internet. He's a young kid. He, he's 18 years old. He accepted Jesus at 17. He's been a Christian one year. He said, I've listened to enough sermons. But if Jesus, if this Christian life is some sort of video game where there's like a level one through level 10, how do I get to level 10? Legit question. 18 year old. It's not enough, pastor. It's not enough. I'm listening to sermons. It's not enough. How do I do it? How do I get there? I'm like... Can I be this hungry? Can I be hungry enough that I will call people from Fort Wayne, Indiana, in California, because I read about them on the internet, because I just have to know it's not enough, and I want to live in the light, not on the edges. And I was like, man, this is the best call I've had all week. Like, you don't even understand. Let's talk. I spent two hours with that guy. Let's talk. I hope for you it's not enough. Hear me. Like if it's not at times in your life when you begin to slow down, if it's not disturbing, it's a problem. It's why we come together. 
One's to encourage, man, when you're hurting, we want to walk with you. The other is to spur you on gently, but spur you nonetheless. Because he's worth it, and a life with him is worth it. And a life with him, let me just tell you, it's dangerous, it's scary, it's uncertain, but it is so much better than living at the edge of the light and believing that that's enough. Man, that's boring. You imagine an obituary that says, I almost stepped in the light, but it looks scary. Don't do it. Don't do it. Run in. There are plenty of reasons not to get up and run in. Forget about them and run in anyways. Let's pray. Father God, would you disturb us? Would you challenge us? Would you turn the lights on in the areas of our life that we don't want anyone to know about? God, would you rest away the control of the areas of our life that we want to retain control of? Will you take the things that we don't want to give up and we don't want to lay at the altar and will you rip them out of our cold hands and remind us that it's yours anyways? God, you love us so much, God. Would you disturb us to the point that we realize that we're all yours? That life was only ever intended to work when we were with you anyways, God. Will you call men and women to the light? You call them out of the darkness and will you let us participate in it and see it and use us even though we don't deserve it. Use these these cracked up, busted up people that we are for ministry and for kingdom work and for miracles, God. God, when when, when people want to know if there's hope, God, would you disturb us so greatly that all they would need to do is see how we love you and love one another to realize there must be something in this dark world. Now, this Christmas season, will you give us the gift of your presence, palpable and overwhelming in our lives and in our church and in our small groups and in our families, God, that just changes family trees, that just shifts legacies, God, from disaster to hope. We love you, God. We desire to be a people that is on fire for you, God. And, and for those, God, that are here today or they're, they're online and they're watching, and it's not enough to just sit in this seat and listen to a sermon. They want to do something. They want to bring a portion of their life to you, God. They want to take a next step in their walk, God. Will you spur them to move and motivate them, God, to chase after you all the more? In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team, elders, pastors, uh, prayer warriors are gonna be up here. We'd love to answer questions for you or pray for you. We're gonna sing a song. Uh, If you're being led to uh, baptism, we wanna talk to you. If you're being led to take a step of faith with the Lord, we wanna talk to you. If you don't know why you wanna talk, but you wanna talk, we wanna talk to you. We love you. You move as the Lord leads you. Merry Christmas.